First Family. Good morning. Welcome to worship today and welcome to Advent. Now, I got a note from somebody earlier that said, Advent doesn't technically start until whatever. You know what? We're celebrating it today because God has given us the chance to do so. Amen? And we start with lighting these beautiful candles that my friends the Up Churches did so well. It is a joy to start Advent today because it means that we can talk about the gracious gift that God has given us. It starts with the red candle. Now, there's a lot of different ways to celebrate Advent. This one is uniquely ours. The red candle we set aside to designate for prophecy. A reminder that the story of Jesus does not start in Bethlehem. It started in the heart of God before the foundations of the world were laid. It was foretold throughout the Old Testament and promised that there would be one who would come and make all things right and said everything as it should be. If we've ever needed a word like that, it's now. I don't know about you, but it seems a little overwhelming sometimes to look around me and see all the grief, all the hurt, all the pain. It's easy to say, well, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Ukraine? Yes, those two wars are horrible, but let's move it a little closer to home. We don't have to go very far at all for some of us to find darkness. Darkness falls on a regular basis, doesn't it? Seems like it does. It causes us to wonder, where is God in the midst of this? Where is God, and why doesn't he solve these things? This, friends, is why the first theme of Advent is, this year, hope. Unconquerable hope. A hope that cannot and shall not be defeated. A hope that supersedes and exceeds anything else we can ever know. Now, hope is a word that gets misunderstood a lot because we use it sometimes wrongly. Many times when we say hope, well, I hope that there's something good for lunch. I hope that I get a certain gift for Christmas. These are indeed hopes But the hope that we're talking about here is different than that. It's a certainty, a fixed position, if you will, that says, this much I know for sure. I can be positive this hope will last. It anchors my days and secures me when the winds blow high. If we've ever needed that hope, it's now. Let's just take a moment right now as we begin our Advent journey and pray for hope across our world today. Pray with me, won't you? Oh Lord, we live in a hopeless and dark world. It is a difficult time, Lord. We see it all around us. Some of us in our own homes. We know, Lord, the pain that darkness brings. We know, Lord, how difficult it is to navigate when hope seems lost. We see the wars going on in Israel and Ukraine, and it's easy to be overwhelmed and say, if God is hope, where is he? We thank you today, Lord, that we can say confidently, you're right where you've always been, seated confidently and securely on your throne, securing our days with a hope that cannot be conquered. I pray today, Lord, you would meet with us in this time. Awaken our hearts 
and shake loose the cobwebs in our souls. I pray, God, you would help us to be reminded that hope isn't something that we have to wonder if it exists, but rather it's something that we can secure ourselves to. Let us do that very thing today, Jesus. Move in each of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of my most favorite music artists is a a gentleman named Toby Mack. Toby uh, sings contemporary Christian music, has for about 35 years. Toby is a wonderfully gifted musician in every respect. And I've had the, the, the luxury of following along with his career and albums from when he was much younger, so was I then. So one of the songs that he recorded a few years ago, though, is one that has meant a lot in his life and for me. He wrote it at a dark time in his life. You see, Toby's 20-ish-year-old son, Truett, through a series of circumstances, died in 2019. Despite all the ministry that Toby had been a part of for all those years, Truett died. Now, the circumstances are still unsure, at least to me, and maybe somebody knows about it, but not me. And quite frankly, I don't need to. What I do know is that what Toby wrote as a result. You see, in a time of darkness, Toby dropped back to what he's always done, right? He sat down and wrote out a song. It may be midnight or midday. He's never early, he's never late. I've lived enough life to say, help is on the way. And that's the theme that comes back. In one of the darkest times of his life, with his son having died, he still echoes that there is reason for hope. Likewise, we might say the same for our friend Isaiah, the one who wrote the book that we read read from today. Isaiah's prophecy is written at a difficult time, about 700, 750 years before the time of Christ. God tells Isaiah something that is difficult to hear. The people of Israel have committed sins against God, and the bills of that sin are coming due. God had warned them, hey, you can do disobedience, but it's going to cost you. Don't be foolish. He had warned them over and over again, and yet they continued to reject him and ignore God's counsel and God's word. Hmm. Sound familiar? Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. But for Isaiah, the word that God had given him was, tell them there is a judgment coming. Tell them there's a day of reckoning on the horizon. Tell them that there will come one who will carry them away into captivity. Tell them this dark news. Isaiah does indeed tell them that dark news. And in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book, it's a hard word, a word that we struggle to accept and we receive, even now, all these centuries later. It's a word that causes us to say, ouch, that hurts. And yet, right in the middle of that section, well, not quite in the middle, but early on, in chapter 9, he wants them to know the darkness has not overcome. What I love about this Sunday, this particular Sunday, is this passage. I also love the Advent candles that we light. The first one is always special, and here's why. Before you light the candle, it's just dark. If we were to turn off all the lights and draw all the shades down, then we would see that it's just dark without that one candle. 
But with just that one candle lit, even if it were stone-cold dark in here, darkness has not won. Just a little bit of light will conquer the greatest amount of darkness. You see, darkness is just the absence of light. There is no such thing as darkness. There's just where light isn't. And that's what Satan doesn't want you to know. In chapter 9 of Isaiah, the light begins to flicker. And it reminds them that even in their worst moment, there is yet hope. Let's jump into the notes here. The Lord promised a Redeemer who would usher in, who would bring an era of hope. See it in verses 1 and 2. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. This moment of loss, this symbolism of Zebulun and Naphtali, it's a reminder that in the nation of Israel and in the people of God, there is difficulty, there is challenge. That little connective word, but, is a significant one. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, if you're one who understands symbolism, you know that means everything from the Mediterranean all the way over into what we call Jordan, everything from the very northern reaches of the nation of Israel all the way down to the desert. This is the full breadth of it. Everybody will receive this blessing. And what is that blessing? Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light is shown. What does it mean? It means this. The momentary darkness will not last. It won't last. It won't last. I got a reminder of that this week. You know, a few weeks ago, some of you got emails from me. Or actually, it wasn't me. It was somebody pretending to be me. It was an imposter who had created several fake email accounts pretending to me, using my name, my image, my likeness, and they didn't even pay me for it. And that's the worst part of all. And so they had all these emails they sent out. They bombarded a list. I don't know how they gathered up all of those names because it wasn't just our church. It was people I know from all over the state. And they sent out these emails saying, hey, I'm in a deep season of prayer and I'm trying to gather up these wonderful Christmas gifts for women struggling with cancer. If you will email me back, email me back. I know you can help me with this. Well, when you email them back, they say, go down to the store and buy up two, $4,000 worth of uh, gift cards and give me the numbers and I'll take care of it from there. It's theft. Nothing more than that. You know... This happens to me somewhat regularly, I guess because people think I know people, and, and there's really not a whole lot we can do about it, but I just, I, I, I'd struggled with it. And so I sat down and I wrote one of them back. I sent an email to myself, which was bizarre all by itself, knowing that it wasn't me I was writing to, and I put in the subject line, fraud and theft will send you to hell. Let me tell you, I don't know who you are, I started. I said, but if we can find you, we're going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. What you're doing is wrong. It's immoral, and it's theft. Nothing more than that. Shame on you. And I hit send. But I signed it, the real Darren. 
believe it or not, are you ready for this? I got a note back from the fake Darren, and that's how he signed it. I don't believe in hell, is essentially what he said. Not only that, I'm doing God's work. I was absolutely speechless. If you want to see the full context of it, I posted it onto my Facebook page. You can go there and see it. I was speechless at how dark his heart had really become, whoever this is. And he signed it, the fake Darren. I wrote back to him again. And I said, hey, take whatever measures you need to to feel better about yourself. But I'm telling you, theft and fraud are sin. I'm ready for God's judgment. How about you? He wrote back, but I'm not going to repeat what he wrote back to me then. I tell you this because I want you to understand darkness comes in a lot of forms. Sometimes it arrives with a phone call, sometimes with an email, sometimes in circumstances in life. Darkness comes in a lot of forms. But I want you to underscore this, it's always momentary. Always. Don't ever trap yourself into believing that it is anything but that. Darkness is momentary because God has willed it to be so. If you need to see it again, look again at verse 2. Verse two. The people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. What does it mean? It means this. God's grace-filled and transcendent nature will bring a hopeful light. Grace-filled and transcendent. I bet I worked on this one sentence for 20 minutes, trying to get it exactly like I wanted to, wanted, wanted to say it. God has at its essence a desire to show you grace. He wants to love you right where you are. He wants to share his goodness with you. He wants you to let him share that way. The only way he can do that is to be transcendent. It's a powerful word that means God reaching down because you can never reach up high enough. God interacting in human affairs because you can't reach up to interact with his. God acting on your behalf because he longs for you to reach to him. This is God's transcendence. And I want you to grab a hold of this because what it means is that God has broken in to human history. He has stepped into time and brought a cosmic shift. Everything will be different because of what happens in verse 2. It will never be the same. This change shifts eternity. The light exposes the darkness for what it is. A lie. You see, the darkness wants you to believe it has all kinds of power, all kinds of authority, all kinds of strength. But the moment you turn the light on, darkness has to flee. And here's the thing. The darkness knows it. You make it sound like darkness has a personality. I believe it, I believe it does. Let me tell you, friends, Satan is the author of darkness. And here's good news for you. He's already lost. Not only is he already lost, he knows he's already lost. And not only does he know that he's already lost, he hopes that you don't know that he's already lost. Because as long as you don't know or don't remember that he has, he can continue to trick you into thinking that darkness will always be dark. Oh, friends, let's move on quickly because there's good news on the next three verses, starting in verse 3. 
The Lord has broken your past. You are free from it. Verse 3, you've multiplied the nations. You've increased this joy. They rejoice before you as at, with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when you, they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God's light brings joy as well as hope. That's verse, two, verse 3. It causes us to recognize, hey, God is no longer limited by my past, my mistakes, the things I've done that I wish I could undo. God is not limited by that anymore. He's not restricted. And not only that, he's brought me hope and joy. We'll get to joy next week. But let's talk today about hope. The moment of this new age, then, promises a fresh start, brought by the Redeemer. It means, our, it means the kingdom of God will be expanded. It means the defeat of all the enemies. It means that I've been granted the opportunity for a fresh start. And he draws out one enemy specifically, the Midianites. You remember them? Way back in the book of Judges, Gideon, he was the one who was fighting the Midianites. Not just him, but most famously him. And what happens to the Midianites? Well, ultimately, they defeat themselves. God creates such a panic within them that they strike each other down. This is the essence of God's great glory. When it's his battle to fight, he'll do it his way. Your past need not dictate your future, but it can. Here's good news. Your enemies lie defeated at the foot of the Redeemer. I want you to imagine the worst enemy that you have, the most terrifying enemy that you faced, lying face down, defeated, at the foot of the Savior. Then you begin to get an idea of why it is that Jesus came in the first place. He came to bring hope, hope that means that you no longer are limited by what you can imagine or what you can do. Well, okay, Darren, I get it. I hear what you're saying. But how do I know this is really true? How can I be sure of this? <laughs> the Lord has given you a sign and a promise. Maybe you have ever asked God for a sign at some time in the past. Yeah, like Bill Ingvall, here's your sign. If you don't know that song, then go look it up when the service is over. You'll be blessed by it. This sign, though, is different. It's one that causes us to recognize God's plan in the first place. And it starts right there in verses 6 and 7. If you have not already underlined those verses, you can take care of that right now. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It starts with a small word. And no, the word is not child. It's that little transitive word right there at the beginning of verse 6. Four. All this will come to pass. This light will shine. 
the enemies will be defeated. The moment of reckoning will change by means of, for, a child. Hmm. It's a small word, but it has a big meaning. It means God's overwhelming and sovereign plan is his to carry out, and he has the authority to do so. This plan, born in the heart of God for his people, will indeed find its fulfillment, because God wills it to be so. There's no one who can stop it, and there's no one who can slow him down. It will come to pass at just the right time, all because it's in the heart of God. He makes it so. Maybe you're in a moment where you're struggling. Maybe you're wondering, where is God? The people of Isaiah's day were asking the same question. I want to give you the same sign that God gave them. For unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given. The all-powerful Messiah will come as a child. Now, in the history of Israel, there have been children who served as kings before. Most famously, Josiah. You'll find him in 2 Kings 22. He came to the throne at eight years of age and served admirably. But the concept of a baby king, that was new. It would have been shocking to the hearers, and indeed it is still to us if we're new to this, to this understanding. How or why or what manner would allow this child, this baby, to know what to do? I want you to imagine for a second that we've elected a baby to be president of the United States. Not one who acts like a child, but an actual child. That would be cruel to the child. That would be cruel to us. They'd be in over their heads before it even started, wouldn't they? Unless, unless this was no ordinary child. And indeed, verse 6 makes clear, this is indeed no ordinary child. He is to be known by his foreordained name, the Messiah, Emmanuel, the anointed one, the Christ, this is the one that has been promised and indeed shall come at just the right time. Let's be clear. The Messiah has multiple roles and multiple titles, each undergirding the last. Now, no doubt, if you've been to church very much at all during this time of year, you've seen or heard these names used before. We're going to walk through them for our purposes today because they're too good not to, all right? Let's start with wonderful. Now, in most of our modern translations, we read it wonderful counselor as if wonderful is an adjective describing his work as a counselor. No doubt that's true. But in my reading of it, in my understanding, wonderful stands separate from counselor. It has with it the notion that he is all by himself wonderful. When we see people interact with Jesus throughout the pages of the New Testament, we recognize that they see something that we can't. They see him for who he really is. They see him and know who he is simply by observation. 
a reminder of Luke 7 is appropriate, where the woman, sick for 12 years, believes that if she can just touch the hem of his garment, that will be enough. So indeed, she does touch the hem of his garment, and she is rewarded for her faith with the healing that she longed for. Now, did Jesus have that authority all along? Sure, because he's wonderful. This is by nature who he is. When we recognize wonderful, and we recognize who he is in his essence. Not only is he wonderful, though, he's also counselor. When we use this term, we mean we're going to see someone who can help us straighten things out, who can help us understand what's going on around us and maybe even within us, who can help us come to terms with some of the the drama and the trauma that we've been through. The idea of needing a counselor is right because we all need someone to give us direction. And this is the essence of his role as counselor. His wisdom is right. His rule is just. He does what is right and knows how to do it. Likewise, under his reign, he can be trusted. He is wonderful. He is counselor, somebody you can turn to when you're confused, when you're broken, when you're wounded, when you're hurting, when you're upset. These are the essence, this is the essence of his role as counselor. Why don't we turn to him more? Instead, we turn on podcasts and TED Talks. We try to read self-help books and we ask our friends for help when all the while the counselor is waiting for us to turn to him. Friends today, lean into the counselor. He waits for you. This one in the middle, it's sort of like the center of a record, if you know what a record is. A hole around which everything else revolves. Mighty God. When we say that our Messiah is wonderful, when we say he is counselor, those are tremendous. But how much better are they when he is also the mighty God, the one whose authority is final and complete, the one whose power is unmatched and sovereignty unparalleled. This, friends, is a a reminder that God, in his authority, in who he really is, when he rolls up his sleeves, you know he's going to work. And friends, here we see him doing exactly that. This one, this Messiah who will come, he is wonderful, he is counselor, but he is also mighty God. That's why it's inappropriate for us to speak about him as the man upstairs. That mocks the mighty God nature that he exists in. Let us never fail to recognize that while he is wonderful and he is counselor, he is also a mighty God. The most personal of the names given to him is next, everlasting father. Friends, this implies a length of reign that has no end and a familial connection between us and him. Let me pause the narrative for a moment and say to you that are fathers and grandfathers, recognize that you are teaching your children and grandchildren about what God looks like through your actions. If that doesn't overwhelm you, you're not paying attention. It certainly does me. 
I thought by the time I got to this age that I would be smarter, that I would be wiser, that I would know what to do, that somehow, somewhere along the line, this bucket of information would just be dumped upon me and that when I had my own, own child that I would know what to do and I would know what to say. Uh, it's not that easy, is it? Life is complicated. Life is difficult. How much more so, though, if we leave our children to their own devices? And I mean that literally. Let us instead recognize that God, our Father, has called us to show them the Father. Everlasting Father, for some of you, that's not necessarily praiseworthy. For some of you, and I'll speak to you for just a moment, the title of Father is a painful one. Either you never had one in the first place, at least not in the sense that one was in your home, or yours was abusive, yours was painful, yours was not what you've seen described in the Bible. Can I say to you today, I'm sorry. I grieve with you. But understand that God longs to remake that in your heart, in your mind, and let you see him as the everlasting father and be your father in that, one to whom you can turn when you're afraid, one to whom you can go when you're wounded, one to whom you can rest in the arms and know that you will not be turned away. Friends, recognize that our wonderful counselor, mighty God is also our everlasting father. Let us conclude with the one that I like best of all, Prince of Peace. Under his reign, peace shall be universal. No chaos, no animosity, no fear, no uncertainty, no brokenness. Vulnerability is okay. In that moment, in that context, right then and there is where the Prince of Peace rules and reigns. This, friends, is a place where we do not live now. We see it painfully all the time. But it's where our hearts have longed to go. We see it in Revelation 7. There you find what it looks like as the nations gather around the throne of God worshiping. We see it in Revelation 20, where judgment is behind them and they're celebrating with all the angels and all the hosts of heaven together, rejoicing in that. There, there is where the Prince of Peace reigns in his fullest form. But until then, does that mean that the Prince of Peace can't reign now? No, it doesn't mean that at all means that we have to lean into the peace and the prince who brings it. Can you join me today in praying for this? Because it doesn't always feel like that will come to pass. Oh, friends, those last few words of verse 7, would you just turn there as we close? I want you to see this because it is a stamp of God's authority 
And I want you to see this as a, a moment of certainty, something that you can hold on to. See it again. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. <laughs> so it's not up to me to bring it to pass. It's not up to us to wish it into existence. This is about who he is and his heart for us. And now the attention turns to you. Now you've seen who he is. Now you've remembered that prophecy candle and the reason that Jesus came and the unconquerable hope that he came to bring you. And now the attention shifts to you. What will you do with this wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace? You will either make him your own or push him out in the cold. You will either accept him and let him rule and reign in your life or you'll push him out and say, this is not for me. You will do something with him, and you'll do it today. My prayer is that you'll embrace him and recognize this is the moment for which Jesus came, to bring you to himself. Maybe you've never done that. Well, here's good news. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and I'll be waiting for you right down here. If you want to know how you can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, not in the sense of I recognize him because I've seen his picture, but in the sense of I've heard his heartbeat because I've leaned against him, then let's come down. You come down and meet me right here and let's talk. Maybe you need to come to this altar. You've been carrying a heavy burden and God is inviting you to come here and lay it at his feet. Nothing magical about doing that. But there is something awfully powerful about giving physical expression to spiritual impulses. Maybe you need to be a part of our church. Then come down and talk with me about how you can join our fellowship and be a part of what God is doing here. This is the day to make a decision. Let's pray together. So today, Jesus, we proclaim our love for you and our desire be yours. I know, Lord, the darkness seems overwhelming. I know, Lord, that when we're in that dark season, it seems like day will never dawn. But you came and you brought light, just like you described yourself in John 8. You declared you are the light. So Jesus, we invite you into this place to bring hope, the unconquerable hope that you meant to give. I pray for those who are burdened and broken today. I pray that you would give them release and freedom. I pray for those who need to come down here and respond to you. I pray that you would bind fear far away. I pray, God, that today, right here now, you would do your work in each of our hearts. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's your chance, my friends. We won't sing long, but if you need to come, this is your chance. Stand and sing with me as you come.